You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I, I'm that weird fan who likes every Metallica thing, though. So I'm like the, the, the every, person. I every the Lou Reed album that they did. Oh yeah, I genuinely really, oh, really, but because I'm a big fan of bands and musicians who don't do the same thing over and over again. And thank the Lord of rock and metal that we have bands like Metallica who go, you know what? We're so successful, we can do what the hell we want and keep life interesting. Amen that, to that. If, I agree. Because if every band and musician played it safe, it would be an incredibly boring planet to live on. And the reason Metallica are so big is because they take chances. I genuinely believe that. If they had not done the Black Album, they would have been forgotten about very quickly. Hello, dear friends and listeners, everyone. I am Siobhan Cronin here, as always, with Ben and Corey, and we are excited to come back for another episode of 2020 with our dear friend, British Ambassador Richard Shaw, one of our original guests, currently of Richard Shaw and all the things that he does, formerly of Cradle of Filth that we've talked about on all of our prior episodes. So I'm really excited to dive back in with you and talk about the things that are going on, Uh, maybe get a little more topical in this episode, just kind of riff here as we do on 2020. We're excited to have you back as always. I'm excited to be back. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and uh, I've missed you all. We've missed you as well. We might just sit here and riff is our code for, we don't have a plan. We don't know what's going on. <laughs> it's a chat. It's a chat. Well, we've gotten um, into the fourth level of of talking, which is like, you know, we no longer need to cover like, what have you done in your life now? It's like, we just get into you know, all the depths of anything and everything. <laughs> Let's okay. pick up where we stopped off because when Richard came on he was last, he was like, oh yeah, I'll talk to you. And I, I don't think any of us fully internalized how big of the news it was because you had just left Cradle of Filth and we were your first interview, which by the way, makes us feel warm and fuzzy inside. And yeah. we thank you for that. Um, what was it like after you got off the show? Because I have to tell you, my Google feed blew up so much with you and us that I had to unfollow everything to do with us. <laughs> yeah, it was it was pretty crazy. And in, in all honesty, I think I was maybe too honest. Impossible. If that's a thing. And um yeah, it got very interesting for a while. People taking like little bits of the interview, taking it out of context, or even putting it in the right context and turning into a bigger thing than what it was and all this kind of stuff so it got a bit interesting in about a week following the uh it's called media dude exactly it's called journalism i'm cutting up shorts of this show and i am so egregiously um (laughs) taking things out of out of context and it's fun (laughs) i put like absolutely radical things kanye west is a crazy person and it's like it's kind of the gist of it but it's not exactly what I said, but it works, right? So it's for news. It's clickbait. It's like, Rick, you know what we should start off this episode? What does Richard think about Pantera? And now we'll get blabbermouth all over us. <laughs> even if we don't even talk about it. The very fact you've just said that. Richard Shaw doesn't want to like, talk about Pantera. That's the headline. Yeah, exactly. That's how it works. <laughs> Got to get those advertising dollars. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually curious. So, you know, like we said, after our last episode, there was a bunch of quotes and stuff and, and the, the blogosphere and, and all the metal news kind of went nuts there. But, but honestly, how long did that last for? Yeah, it was probably about two days yeah. where I kept getting tagged in things and even pages I follow, there's my face <laughs> next to Danny's. I'm like, oh, God, that's, that's awkward. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, obviously things get back to the band and all this kind of stuff. So it, it it was kind of that kind of thing where it got a bit dramatic for a little while after that, where it was like, okay, now that everything's died down, I'm starting to hear what people may have heard mm-hmm. <laughs> like from 
people it may have affected, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So uh, you're kind of thinking, oh man, maybe I was a bit too honest and stuff. But 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 then again, it's like, well, it's not my problem anymore. Were we talking <laughs> about you leaving Cradle of Filth or the fact that you you are with Mark? Um, where it says that men only dress up with like makeup and play sweep arpeggios uh, for other men or something like that. There's a really cool article about you guys that black oh, metal people yeah. only impress other men. I, I forgot I, about I was that. So, that was my favorite article of the year is that it's a picture of Richard and Marek on the cover of Metal Injection. And it says people only dress up in black metal costume and, uh, to impress other black metal guitarists. And I, uh, I thought that was great. Well, it's it's true. You know, that's the only reason we do it. We don't do it for the music. Uh, we don't do it for the money. We don't. We just want to impress other guys. No, I, I, that's why. That's why I found the whole thing hilarious. Like, I, I actually know the guy who posted it originally, and I just messaged him. Was like, dude, and he was like, like, did you have to use? Me and Marek, really? And he was like, I thought you'd find it funny. I was like, I do, but, you know, context is everything. Come on. <laughs> but uh, we had a good laugh about it. And again, that lasted all of a day. And if anything, me and Marek got, like, more Instagram followers from it. So I don't – yeah, from it. a bunch of from a bunch of black metal dudes. So from more black metal guitar players, which is already pretty niche. So you know, we got even more followers in a very very niche field. Chronos from Venom said that's not true. Is that another clickbait thing? Probably. I don't know, but it could be. It could be. Let's see how many clickbait things we can slam into this episode. Yeah. <laughs> well, I would be. I'm curious. What do you think of Pantera? Yeah, what what do I think? It's like, what does Corey Taylor think? Like, if it becomes a, uh, what does Richard Shaw think? That, that could have been a hot topic for a little while. Well, let's see. Let's see. What, what does the guy that wears makeup for other dudes think about Pantera's reunion? Which, Where's by the makeup? way, is a tribute. Yeah. I, see, I, I love Pantera. They're one of my all-time favorite metal bands ever. And I have no problem with the tribute. And there you have it. In the words of Richard Shaw. Surely that cannot be taken out of context. I, I don't, because the way I see it, I'm one of those unlucky fellows who never got to see Pantera, despite being one of my all-time favorite bands. I never had the chance. By the time I got really into Pantera, they very rarely toured the UK. And when they did, it was more like a festival show, and I was still relatively young to go to festivals. Um. So in 2004, when such tragedies happened, I was like 19 thinking, well, that's it. I'll never hear these songs live ever again, unless it's by a shitty cover band. But, you know, this is the next closest thing. In the same way that I'm a huge Queen fan, and I was one when Freddie, well, when Queen stopped touring, I was one year old. Oh, so there was no chance I was ever going to get to see Queen. So when they came back with Paul Rogers and then again with Adam Lambert, I was like, well, at least I get to hear these songs performed with some of the guys in the band. So that's the way I see the Pantera trip. Well, they call Queen and Adam Lambert or Queen and Paul Rogers. And that's because, I mean, the most unmistakable part of a band, for the most part, is the vocalist. So you can't replace Freddie Mercury. So they say Queen and Adam Lambert. But let mm. me ask you this. If Brian May had died, and Freddie Mercury was up there at 60 something years old or what have you singing. Do you think they'd still call it queen and they just find a, a Brian May guy? I do. I personally think I, if it, cause I, yeah. that, he's the guy that's, that's, you can't, cause Freddie Mercury, you can't 100% imitate him. I mean, there's a guy named uh, Mitch Martell that actually sounds identical to him. So it's pretty scary. But for the most part, as a singer, like if Phil and Selma was dead, but then they had, um, Dime and Vinny. It still, to my ears, would sound weird because it's not Phil, because he's the singer. There's something about being a singer. But, you know, I think if Queen, if if, if Brian May had died, that they still call themselves Queen. I mean, this is a weird, fictitious universe that I'm just inventing right now. But I, it, it upsets me because I saw Pantera eight times in life. And I was lucky you enough to You asked a question Dime. about 40 seconds ago and then answered it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning about interviewing. Yeah. Sorry. 
No, I'm I'm curious. Go, go with go with your train of thought. I'm enjoying. I'm enjoying. I, I I'm I'm enjoying your train of thought. <laughs> well, okay. So I, I saw Pantera a bunch of times live, and I thought they were freaking amazing. And obviously, it's like Van Halen. They, it's a really good analogy. If Alex Van Halen died and Eddie Van Halen died, but here's the thing: David Lee Roth and Sammy Hagar and Michael Anthony. It's arguable that none of them are as integral to the band as Phil and Zelmo. And I mean, honestly, Rex is a huge deal, but, and, and those guys wrote the songs too, because that's another thing. It'd be one thing if Dimebag and Vinny had written all the songs, but Phil and Rex wrote all of those songs too. The Van Halen thing is, is unique though, because you could go see, you know, Dave and Sammy perform as solo artists doing Van Halen songs. So you kind of get to a preview of what that was like, and it wasn't the same. <laughs> well, Phil and the Illegals wasn't the same for me either. I mean, Zach Wilde, there's something about Zach and then Charlie. Because I mean, listen. The one the first the first time I saw Pantera as a as a headlining act was with Anthrax, and all those guys came out on stage. Those dudes were buds. And Charlie, even when I was a kid, I used to think Vinny and Charlie those were the dudes for me. So uh, and it's crazy too because I just um, I DJed John uh, Danae's wedding, um, and the only guy that wasn't there was Charlie. And I'm like, why isn't Charlie here? He's practicing with Pantera. Give me a real reason, John, you know, and I went and saw the, I saw the shows online. I was skeptical. I'm sitting there like the dude with the black jacket on with my arms crossed. All right. And then you go watch the video from them in Chile and it's like 60,000 people jumping up and down, like the craziest concert you've ever seen. And it sounds awesome. And to be honest with you in seeing Phil eight times, drunk as a skunk, high as a kite on pills, he never sounded as good as he sounds now because he used to run around and drink booze and all that. He kind of stands there or sits like Phil Collins in his chair, but he sounds perfect. So for me, obviously it doesn't have Vinny and Dime. I think Charlie's, I don't want to say interchangeable, but like, God damn it. He sounds like an Ouija board. And Zach Wilde isn't Dime, but if there is a guy that can do the Dime thing and not offend, and you know he went drinking with him and he sounds awesome, it's Zach, and he doesn't even play it note for note. There's a girl who's 17 who plays closer solos to Dime than Zach does, but it doesn't matter because it's Zach fucking wild. And when I went and saw that show, sat for 75 minutes through the bootleg, I was crying. And I said, I'm so glad that a whole new generation is going to love this because now all of my songs will be cool again. So this episode this is now titled What Ben Thinks About Pantera. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> That'll be the Sorry, problem. I won't talk for the rest <laughs> for the rest of the episode. No, I'm, not I'm just talking. kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it, it, but it, I 100% agree with Benny in the sense that I have s- guitar students now who are getting into Pantera. Like, like kids who are hearing Pantera for the first time. Right now. Yeah. Right now. Because they're like 14, 15. They got into guitar through whatever was popular at the time maybe like taylor swift ed sheeran and then all of a sudden they start picking up the guitar and they go okay i've heard of this band called metallica from like an older relative or something like and then now it's like okay now they're into rock and metal and now they're hearing this name pantera popping up everywhere on social media and this conversation people are having of should this tribute happen should it not happen there's almost like this weird chasm that falls down the middle is people are getting into Pantera or they're rediscovering Pantera again. Well, it's kind of like the Gen Z kids that are getting back into Queen or not getting back, getting into Queen because of the Bohemian Rhapsody movie. It's like all of a sudden exactly. everyone's singing the songs at the bar and it's like, wait, did you ever listen to them? And I think that movie made a huge difference in it. That's the thing. I don't care how people get into these classic bands, just get into them. <laughs> like, that's the way I always see it. There's different ways of doing it. People are getting into Ghost because of TikTok. And people are getting into Metallica because of Stranger Things and Kate Bush because of Stranger Things. I don't care how you find them. Just find them. And you'll find a whole new world of music you would never have found had it not been for you watching like Stranger Things like for like two minutes. Well, speaking of Stranger Things, too, I, I Shazammed a song when I was watching it. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is extreme. And I had no idea because, you know, we've talked to them, but I, I didn't listen to the full discography. And I was like, wow, that's super cool. And so just, yeah, you're right. Think about all the people that are discovering the music just because of the pop culture of something else is completely unrelated. Exactly. I, weirdly enough with Extreme, I first heard Extreme because of Bill and Ted. <laughs> yeah. Like I was like a seven, eight-year-old kid, not even really into rock music yet, but apart from whatever my parents were playing. But then you hear something like, 
play with me on Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. And you're like, me too, man. What's that? I'm not even playing guitar or anything yet. I'm like, for well, years away from playing guitar yet. How old were you before you realized that Beethoven was Nuno Betancourt in that movie? Because I know so, so, so people that, that haven't seen Bill and Ted's excellent <laughs> adventure in the middle of the mall, they, they go back in time and Beethoven's one of the characters. <clears throat> And he goes into a music shop and he starts playing on a synthesizer. It's not his played, synthesizer not played, solo. It's not is, played by Nuno though. Oh, yes, that's why I got confused. Yes, it is. Play, it is? The solo that, that Beethoven plays is the Nuno. I'm saying the character solo. isn't Nuno. No, oh no, no, no. His character is not Nuno. Yeah, yeah. So when he goes into the music store, Beethoven plays play with me the guitar solo on the keyboard. And I used to think, I'm like, is that a cool keyboard patch or whatever? Like at seven or what have you. And then later in life, I'm like, holy shit. That the best part of the the reason I one of the reasons I played piano was watching that scene, and it's because I wanted to be Nino Betancourt and he's a guitarist. So, exactly, I didn't realize that till I was older that that was actually Nuno. What Beethoven was playing on the synthesizer in the mall in the middle of that scene in Bill and Ted. Mm. This is the thing. Like I, I've had the, I've been very fortunate to be a guitar teacher now since like two thousand six, and I've seen many, many, many situations like this where kids are going. I want to pick up guitar. They're either already having lessons with me and want to learn something by a particular artist because they've just heard them on TV or radio or something's happened where all of a sudden that artist or that song is really, really big. Um, or they're complete beginners and they go, I want to play guitar because of this thing I saw on TV. And it always would happen. Like, like you've got like American Idol and stuff. We had like, uh, the, like the voice and, all that kind of stuff. Every Monday morning after it aired on a Saturday, I'd have kids going, can you teach me how to play this song? And like, when it's one kid, you're like, that's weird. When it was every single lesson, you're like, okay, something was on the voice this weekend that made people want to play something on the guitar. It was like fast car, Tracy Chapman. They're like, can I learn how to play fast car? Like, Where the hell have you heard fast car? <laughs> like you're seven. Like, and, and you're going, okay, this is pretty cool. Like, and then, so all the people who like poo-poo these kind of things, I think, you know, yeah. The, the, and the, the way I see it is just however people discover these great songs. They could just be great songs. I know kids who are just like, they only know Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush. That's the only song. But it's amazing how that like spreads into other songs, like whatever Spotify playlist well, has gone. Oh, you like that song? Well, as a teacher, yeah. that song's in like a crazy time signature. Is that one of those things where you had to sit down and be like, this is an 1116? Absolutely. Is it like a good not. opening? No. <laughs> <laughs> although, although, saying that, there, there have been many situations where you do get into counting things with. It depends how long they've been playing. I will never force for theory on people. I just want to get them playing. But there are certain situations where, as they're progressing, you go, okay, now let's. Let's clap along with this. <laughs> let's clap along with uh, Don't Give Up by Kate Bush and Peter Gabriel. And let's see that it's really never been in 4-4. And you only find out that it's never been in 4-4 until you're asked to count along with it. Do you do you talk to Lars Ulrich about that, about Metallica, to, to count along with it, to figure out if he's actually playing Master of Puppets, right? Oh, we're getting into this debate now, are we? <laughs> Let's do it. Why not? Oh no! Do you have okay. any? Uh, do you have any? Do you think that Master of Puppets was deliberately written in a, a weird time signature, or that Lars was just on cocaine and speeding up? Well, it's three bars of four, four, one bar of five, eight, which isn't that crazy. You see that in classical music all the time, yeah. Exactly. That's that's just the way I see it. There's nothing crazy about it. It's um. It's just the fact that the riff is written and you put drums to the riff and the riff wasn't in 4-4 to begin with. So it's not it's not Lars's fault. <laughs> like, depending who you talk to, he plays out of time and other people think he's a genius because he's in different time signatures. Well, okay. How about the new Metallica song? How did that make you? Lux Eterna, because we were just talking to Shannon Larkin, who, by the way, I want to say this, it, it, it warms my heart because he's in the band and I'm friends with him, but that Godsmack has been number one on the charts for five weeks. Metallica dropped a song for the first time in like almost a decade, not number one. As a Metallica fan, that's, un that's unheard unfathomable of. <laughs> yeah. to me. 
Meanwhile, who's at number one? Shannon. Still. (laughs) And Shannon comes on and it's so funny because he's like, they should have been number one. But the fact is, like, they write heavy music. And I'm glad that they they wrote such a heavy song this time that it, it, it wasn't number one. Because Surrender, which is the Godsmack song, is very catchy. Whereas, so is the Metallica song, but catchy to Metallica fans that like yeah. Ride the Lightning. How do you feel about it? I like it. I, I'm that weird fan who likes every Metallica thing, though. So I'm like the, the, the every? I Every. I'm that the fan. Lou, the, Lou, the Lou Reed album that they did? Oh, yeah. I genuinely really? Oh, really but because I'm a big fan of bands and musicians who don't do the same thing over and over again and thank the lord of rock and metal that we have bands like Metallica who go you know what we're so successful we can do what the hell we want and keep life interesting because if I agree. because if every band and musician played it safe it would be an incredibly boring planet to live on and the reason Metallica are so big is because they take chances. I genuinely believe that. If they had not done the Black Album, they would have been forgotten about very quickly. They would have been one of those bands that we talk about. Weren't they great in the 80s? It's a shame they broke up in 1991. <laughs> I wonder what would have happened to them. <laughs> I can tell you, they would make an album called Lulu with Lou, yeah. with Lou Reed that's literally unlistenable. And I guess if you're like David <laughs> David Lynch, where you're like, let's just fuck with them. Let's just do the weirdest thing that we can. Let's go play a whole piano concert and not know how to play piano. Okay, well, yeah. you're right. It is interesting. But this is the thing. I'd rather people try something new and it fails than play it safe. I agree with that. Can't, you, can't, you can't fight that. The problem is with Metallica, that I think a lot of people have, is they try their look every time there's, yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a new album, which I, I like that. I, even if it doesn't pay off, it's only an album. It's like when Queen released Hot Space and people lost their minds because it was like a disco record. And even Freddie was like, it's just an album. Like, calm down. The next one will be different. Well, you know what, though? That's a really great perspective. The Hot Space record, it does sound like they went to Switzerland and did a bunch of cocaine with David Bowie. That's what it sounds like. I mean, Under Pressure, great song. But as a Queen fan, that's right under Flash Gordon for me as far as bullshit records. But I get it. I get it. And and I remember uh, Freddie Mercury on all those concerts in, in like 81, 82 being like, we're not we're not a funk band. We're not a disco band. Like, But at the time... You come out with hot space. It's understandable. The Freddie Mercury impression there was absolutely spot on and was not at least offensive in one to anybody, no. to any Brit. It would no. yeah. it wouldn't be a 2020 episode if, if Ben didn't do some sort of offensive. The impression. irony is I hold Freddie Mercury in such reverence. And the fucked up part, and I'll, I'll show you this. My prized possession, my whole prized possession in my entire life is this signed... Freddie Mercury, Hot Space Record. No. Yeah, so it uh, it's the only Freddie Mercury autograph I've ever been able to afford. But I, for my birthday the other year, I bought myself a signed Freddie Mercury Hot Space Record. And I think it was the cheapest because it was the Hot Space Record. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> no, actually, the funny part was the only way I was able to afford this is not getting a certificate of authenticity because it, his autograph, especially after that, that um, movie, is... Five, this would be like maybe seven or eight thousand dollars for how big it is. But um the guy I bought it from actually in 87 met him in the antiques district. Um uh and I forget I forget where it was, Kensington Market. I don't remember. They they told me the whole story. And I actually had um uh PSA who does the the autograph stuff, they looked at it before it was even shipped overseas and they're like, Oh yeah, that's dead fucking real. So um, I have a great story where basically Freddie Mercury in 87 showed up at an uh, antique in the antiques district somewhere. And the guy, the, the owner of the store was like, I had just bought this record and ran out and he was in his Rolls Royce and he handed it through the window to him. And this is what he got back. And it's a huge ass Freddie Mercury autograph. Wow. So that's, that's the Freddie on hot space. That's amazing. That's really cool. <laughs> I have a Brian May pick, and that's about all I have Queen related. I have many Queen things, but, but, but I actually have Brian May's 
sixpence that he used on stage. Oh, nothing wrong with that. That's, That's awesome. fucking awesome. <laughs> uh, but there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of those in existence, so it's not really worth anything. It's worth something to you. <laughs> it's worth something. I but think it's, it's, I think it's in worth In terms something. of finance, yeah, financially it's not worth much. Yeah. But to me, it's worth everything. It's so cool. Plus, I've got one of those like kind of souvenir ones. Right? Instead of having the queen's head on the coin, it's Brian's. <laughs> That's really cool. That's awesome. We have to buy that from a merch stand. So that was cool. Hey, there's anyway. nothing wrong with that, though, man. Because I, I, I'll tell you, I, I love going to concerts at this point. And like, I would much rather buy an Ingve Malmsteen signed record than actually have to go meet Ingve Malmsteen. I'll tell you that. Like, sometimes I'm like, you know what? I don't want to meet these people, embarrass myself, and lower myself down, and be like, hey. I've been a fan of you all of my life, and someone like Ingve is like walking off. I would rather just buy it and he's then not have that interaction example. at all. Well, no, he's not an odd example. In fact, he gave me the exact look and the exact feeling of I don't give a fuck about you when I did ask him for his autograph. And um, in fact, it it was a weird instance though, because it made me like him more because it's like, oh, everything they say about him is true. <laughs> adds to now you've got a live out that thing of going okay people think i'm a dick so now i have to be a dick otherwise they're disappointed if i'm not a dick <laughs> well oh, i mean no. to give you an idea how much of a dick he was uh, 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 this is the funny story so we're at Ge- i'm at generation x and it's funny to see all these different guitar players because it's nuno Betancourt, it's tosin abasi it's zach wild it's steve i and then you have ingve it's like the greatest guitar symposium of all time well tosin on the bus no interest in anybody you walk downstairs, um, Nuno Betancourt's walking around with 3,000 Betancourts and Sharon. So it's weird. It's like you, you just see all these different people. You're like, is that Nuno? Is that Gary? And it's never Nuno or Gary. It's just one of their brothers because they have a 1,000 of them. They're all super nice. And they all play instruments too, which is fucking crazy. So they all have bands. And then Steve I is like in his little dressing room and walks out like with his like whole gear on and all that. And Zach Wilde, wearing a, a fuzzy Viking helmet, going around just giving people big bear hugs. And then Ingve Malmsteen. So here's the thing. When that tour went around, it was when a lot of those bands like had to tour together to get the audience. It was a really hard time in the music industry. So this is at the Cheval- uh, Chevalier Theater in Medford, which was like an old school or something. So Ingve is literally in a legit broom closet. And he doesn't leave. I mean, the closet's like big enough for you to walk in so he has this gopher like leaving like sub submarine sandwiches next to his door you just see a hand go in just pull it out so me and my friend alicia we're we're waiting outside we're like where's this fucker gonna go it's just a closet it's a broom closet zach uh, zach wilde comes out gives us hugs steve i comes out i'm like hey man bohemian rhapsody sounded great he goes well none of these guys know how to read music so i had to make tapes for all of them and then continues unsolicitedly to, to tell me how he arranged all Bohemian Rhapsody and how they weren't ready to play it tonight, but they had to play it. Walks off. Nuno Betancourt literally interrupts my conversation to ask Steve where more beer is. I'm like, thanks for ruining that, Nuno, as always. Ingve won't come out. He comes out, sees me. I see him. Turns back around, literally walks back into the wall, shuts the door. Thinks I'm going to leave. I'm not going to leave. And I, I ask him for an autograph when he walks out again. He goes, one minute. So I hold it. I stay right in front of him, blocking him. He autographs, and I go, can I get a picture? He goes, you don't have your camera. I'm like, look. And Alicia had already had the camera ready. And you can see Ingve. I'll, I'll send the picture to Corey because <laughs> he looks so caught off guard. But so you know, he walked right out, all black, grabs his Ferrari luggage, walks outside to the bus, goes onto the bus. There's all these people behind the blockade. Ingve, Ingve, with their trilogy records, doesn't look at them goes onto the bus, leaves his luggage outside. All this like uh, this smoke comes up like Darth Vader getting off the ship at the beginning of Star Wars. And then his guy, his gopher, runs up, throws it under the bus, and they drive off into the night. You're probably on the do not admit list for all future Ingve concerts. It's <laughs> <laughs> a giant picture. It's, it's that picture. I wonder if Nuno tipped him off. Dude, like, you no, know, Nuno was getting Betancourt's and, and Sharon's beers and drink and eating pizza. He he didn't even know Ingve was there. Uh. <laughs> There's definitely like you know, like department stores have the picture in the back room of like the people that aren't you know like keep an eye oh, yeah, on these the people re- shoplifters. Yeah. Not. There's definitely like every tour manager has a, a, a picture of Ben somewhere in their uh, in the bus or somewhere that's just like keep an eye out for this dude. Like 
Well, you know, the first time I got kicked out of backstage was by Steve Wood, our other British ambassador. He was he was uh he was being the tour manager for Megadeth in '98, and I went up to Dave Mustaine, and Dave didn't like it, so he said, "Ow!" And Steve literally grabbed me by the scruff of my neck and kicked me out. <laughs> and look how far we've come. <laughs> and now he's like your best friend. <laughs> yeah, Ben has a way with people. That's for sure. He's managing Marty Friedman now, so another I get- person that probably doesn't want to deal with you. He's he's he said to me next time he comes to town, I should jam with him on stage. But now I don't think he realized it could be a possibility because uh, in April he's coming and opening for Queenstrike. And I talked to Steve Wood and Steve's like, you got to meet you got to meet Marty. And I'm, I, I don't know. I don't think he wants to meet me. Why not? You know, I, I just don't get that vibe. I, I mean, I wanted him to come on 2020. Oh, he'll come on. I don't I don't know about that, Steve. I'm his manager. Just ask him. See what he says. So we'll see. But apparently, Marty Friedman might be coming on, but I'm going to go right to Marty's face and ask him what he thinks about Lost Symphony in person. Stand like this. The uh, I don't know if you guys checked out. Marty just posted uh, a clip of him recording his Lost Symphony solo. Uh, I in- saw that. Instagram. Wow. I, was like, just, I was just scrolling through and I'm like, oh, look, it's Marty shredding some ridiculous soul. I'm like, wait a second. That's our song. <laughs> nice. It was awesome. Yeah. yeah. So he he can't be, cool. he can't be that ashamed of us <laughs> if he actually posts. Or he's running why, out of content. <laughs> why would he be ashamed? Because <laughs> he didn't write What it. did you do? You to, uh, anyone that's heard uh, any of our episodes discussing the production process uh, of Lost Symphony working with with, you know, a multitude of, of, of guest players, including Richard, you know, there was some that went very smooth, like Richard, and there was some that were a challenge and it took a lot of back and forth. And and uh, and Marty did a lot. He did like, you know, some arrangement and like, you know, and like had notes on our own compositions. <laughs> so, yeah, was, he was uh, heavily involved in like every step of the process. Yeah. yeah, it's like a teacher going, see me after class about your own song. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. Well, Ben, I mean, yeah, we've talked about this a lot, but one of the first um, songs we did, Requiem with him, it was he did. He was very involved in the arranging side and basically was like, no, no, this is actually your new intro. And then, you know, I arranged all of the orchestra for it. And he's like, no, no, start over. <laughs> wow. Well, here's what happened. We asked him to play on a song that was already like eight minutes long or something, seven minutes long. And he goes, cool. And then writes an intro that's three minutes long, not to a click track. And we're like, what is this? He goes, your intro. I'm like, but we asked you to play on the song. He goes, yeah, here's your intro. <laughs> and we're like, okay. So then I made the worst mistake of, of, of our collective lives between me and Siobhan. Because I was in Miami at that time. And I said, Siobhan, this is Marty Friedman. He's very musically sophisticated. We need to impress him. I want you to use all of your... PhD university skills to write the most complex harmonic melodic response to what he's doing. So she wrote this really progressive, interesting um, thing for Marty. And just so you know, Marty had sent uh, reference tracks. He goes, Oh, you could do something like this. Now, unbeknownst to us, he's like Cartesian thought. They're <laughs> illusion. Uh, free will is just illusion. So when he says, like, these are just ideas. This is what he wants verbatim because when we sent it to him, like this beautiful thing that Siobhan, like, oh, Ben, this is going to knock his socks off. Oh, it knocked his socks off. He's like, this is all wrong. (laughs) And it's the first time I've ever seen Siobhan actually get defensive and be like, it's not wrong. You just, it's not what you were thinking of. And here's why. She actually wrote him like uh, a proof of why it was like harmonically correct. It's just a matter of it wasn't what he was. Ex- yeah, you're used to the Hirajoshi scale, okay, bro? Like you're, you're stupid Japanese pentatonic. I'm sorry that I went straight Locrian on you. Like, what do you want, Marty? I don't know what that means. It's not in the Ramones. And that's when I realized he has no music theory. He just does it all by ear and his brain's that weird. Yeah, so. which is incredible because I'm not that way. And I always wonder how people do that. I've Same. worked mm-hmm. like that, where it's like they are some of the best musicians I've ever worked with. I consider some of the best guitar players on the planet. And I'm like, how do you do that? And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> what do you mean you don't know? Well, and I'll go, well, you're just using this scale. Like when you go into this arpeggio, what made you think of that? He went, I don't know what an arpeggio is. And it's like things like that. You're like, blows okay, my mind. Pure ear. No, you're like Siobhan. So Siobhan, 
is crippled with indecision by the fact that she knows all of the answers. So like me, where I don't even know like the difference between a quarter note and a 30 second note, other than the fact that there's 31 differences. Um, I don't know the difference. So for me, like I, I play something. I remember one of my first guitar lessons and I wrote something, I think in seven, eight, and my teacher was trying to show it to me in four, four. And he's like, no. And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, it's odd time. I'm like, I don't, I don't know what you mean. Cause I didn't understand the way that, you know, time signatures work. And then with Siobhan, because she knows so much music theory, because she's so studious, if you send her something, it's like, well, you could go this way. Well, you could do the half cadence. Well, you could do the whole cadence. Oh, well, you know what? But that's going to go into an augmented sound. And I don't think the augmented sound is going to sound good with the diminished sound three measures before. And then next thing you know, she's like, I can't do this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, long story short with the Marty thing, I mean, it definitely opened my mind. But yeah, through the process, we discovered that we were just coming from totally opposite ends of the spectrum. But it helped because it yeah, I think it forced me to get out of the rules, you know, which is yeah. something that I was really impressed by with the way that he thinks is like everything was so unexpected from the traditional musical theory standpoint. Yeah, that track takes off and it goes in a direction that we would never have, have thought to go. And unfortunately, uh, for anyone that, that wants to go check out Requiem by Lost Symphony, the, the part we're talking about that Siobhan composed is at the end of the song in its entirety because we're like we're not gonna throw this away it's amazing so you get to hear kind of like this marty intro and then we cap off like a bookend with with siobhan's interpretation of it which is like it's beautiful so it's like it's a freaking adventure that song's like what like uh 10 like like 12 minutes minutes it's a long it's a long song but it's it's a it's a good one check it out well (laughs) as requiems are they are long with multiple movements so you're dead by the end of it (laughs) (laughs) i certainly was (laughs) <laughs> yeah. but we're talking about uh ben's like you know writing odd time stuff and, I, and i've figured it out after working uh together for so long that all of your uh odd time riffs are just because you don't have the attention span to wait uh till the you know the next measure comes so when we're working on songs like acceptance which richard you're featured on i remember we're sitting in in that room that you're in right now ben with all the pianos and we were working on that progression and and I'm like, oh, it's a really cool thing. And we're, like, we're trying to like hash it out. And then so we just what we do is we would just hit record and then kind of vamp and then we'd see, you know, what we could take from that. And I don't think you played that in the same time signature once in five minutes. <laughs> so we did no. we went back and we're like, <laughs> all right, well, that sometimes you do it this way. Sometimes, you know, this one kind of works with this one. <laughs> we're going in. We're like, let's take this chunk. OK, now it's in this. And then I still don't know what time signature that's in. But the one we picked, I think, worked out pretty well. So. What is it like? Was it like a 15, 16 or something? I think it's like four, four with five, four alternating or something. I, there, there's some alternations yeah. in the. I think there's some five fours in, yeah. in the solo section, if I remember correctly. But that's what's exciting about it, I think. You're, you're totally right. And something that comes totally naturally to someone is, you know, yeah. the most authentic music making there is in a lot of ways. Well, this- I figured out how to fuck with Paul Lorenzo more because he thinks in one one, so he just counts, <laughs> and he's just like, "Okay, I'll figure out." Right? And so I I took off an and on a new riff. I just took off an and. It wasn't even a whole beat. And he's like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> but then I said, one. "Play it." Sh- that, but then he played it straight, and then it sounded like he was flipping the beat. And I'm like, "Oh, this is so cool! I'm gonna keep writing things with the and missing." And he's like, "Don't ever do it again." <laughs> See, I love when drummers do that. Anyway, I think that's great when you flip the the feel. Yeah. Absolutely. Just play straight through. I'm saying this right now to you, Richard. You'll appreciate this. Well, okay, that, cool. that's what ended up happening when we did Decomposing Composers and I did the Vivaldi thing. He turned a lot of it into a 3-4 rather than, or uh, maybe 4-4 four, four instead of 3-4 something. You know, so he turned a, a big grouping of measures and divided it up totally differently than the traditional interpretation, which was so cool to me because I'm like, wow, I never even thought about the fact that you can lump all these measures together and divide them up. And it's like a totally different rhythm and beat and like harmonic progress everything but that's the thing where i i we don't know if you talk about that i remember hearing when i was 12 years old i heard the attitude song by steve Vai. i was like what the hell time signature is that in not knowing what time signatures were until that moment because i was like what the hell yeah think about that one if you know the song yeah i do know this yeah, i never even thought about it. And, and it's one of the easiest riffs ever to play it was the first Steve I riff I ever learned when I was twelve years old. Not realize I not realizing I was playing in seven eight, but the drums are in four four. 
Beat one, repeat. So it comes back around every four bars. It comes back around. That's why I like playing in 13, and then I just make them catch up like few measures down the road. It's like, let's make them feel really uncomfortable. And it's like, they meant to do this the whole time. But the way I see it with odd time signatures anyway, and the reason why, Benny, you probably write in it and coming back to the whole Lars thing and James thing and Metallica, it's we don't talk in 4 4. So why is it weird when music isn't in 4 4? I find that really odd when people like, I just play, I, I write something, and then they kind of have to, sh- especially in this day and age, I've got to shoehorn it into the click track. Well, that doesn't. Oh, that, shit, that's not in four. Uh, I'll have to change my my riff or whatever. It's like no, the riff was great how it was. Like, why does it have to be in four? We we don't think in four. We don't talk in four. So what's the problem? <laughs> We're changing it. Well, it's exactly what happened when I was going to my first guitar lesson. Is I didn't think that way, and it didn't naturally. Like having listened to all the music growing up, I didn't go. This has to be in four four. I just wrote openly. But then when you're told everything must be in 4-4, and then you go listen to Pink Floyd Money, you're like, Money's one of the first riffs I ever learned. And you're like, that's totally simple. It's in 7-8. And I I didn't think like that. And in fact, I had such bad rhythm for such a long time. I was constantly playing in, in, in the wrong time signature because I would lose a beat or gain a beat, and I couldn't hear it. I wasn't able to really even count music until like maybe a year ago when Shannon Larkin finally was like, oh, oh, that's how you do it. Yeah. This is why I'm obsessed with old time signatures in terms of songwriting, because sometimes it comes from an incredibly pure place and sometimes it is calculated. Either way, as long as the end result's great. It's like, I I think I was 26 when I realized all you need is love isn't in Mm. Mm 4-4. And things like that, where you're like, like this, he's working it out. He's working it out. <laughs> I the didn't ver- realize verse. it at all. The verse is in seven. No, I just, I just got that. But here's the thing. Yeah. It's, this is what I love about the Beatles. And this is what I love about time signatures utilized properly. Yeah. Is you don't realize it because it feels natural and exactly. it grooves. Well, it's the thing, versus the feel is, the, is what's important. It's just like exactly. the, the scale you pick, the key you pick, all that stuff goes into how you want the, the end you know, product of the song to make the listener feel. So I think, you know, obviously 4-4 is so prevalent because it's comfortable, right? So if you're writing a pop song or something like a country and you want, you want the listener to just be able to bob their head to the thing and remember the hooky parts. But, you know, if you want to branch out and you've, you know, you want to give someone a different, you know, uh, vibe, a different feel that they're not expecting and you're good and, and you can slip you know, an odd time riff, like subtly in a poppy sounding song, all of a sudden that song is going to stand out. They might not know why, but you know, th- that song is always going to have uh, something about it that the average listener is not going to be able to put their finger on, which is going to make it, you know, rise above the noise. And that's, you know, that's why it's, it's, I love hearing, uh, I love progressive, crazy, shreddy stuff in, in odd times, but I also love, you know, like something like the Beatles or, or song where, where it's popular and it's and it's catchy, but it's still fucked up somehow. And mm. and no one knows why, but everyone loves it for some reason. Do we not remember that Richard's first foray into the Lost Symphony universe was premeditated destruction? I wouldn't call that pop. Yes. But. Yeah, it's not pop, but it's in 13. It's in 13 eight because my brother who co-wrote it with me is one of those guys that's like, well, if we take off a beat here, it's really going to fuck with him. And we made, and he made it so weird that we're like, that's really awesome and disconcerting and jarring. And nobody wanted to play over. I think I sent it to like Tracy G from Dio and some other, and they're like, oh, I don't feel this at all. I tried, I tried having Jimmy Bell play over. He's like, I don't feel this at all. And then, and, and then he's a great guitarist. Richard, what he sent back to us, working with his buddy Danny, who, by the way, is a great guitarist and is writing awesome songs with Richard. And I'd love for you to talk about that. What you sent back, it was, I literally looked at Corey and said, is this guy even really playing this? And it took you setting the video before I realized it wasn't just like a a studio wizardry. It's so good. Thanks. How did you, how did you, how did you approach the 13, eight part to premeditated destruction guys? It's on, I think it's a chapter one or two chapter two. 
Chapter one. Chapter one. Chapter one. one, chapter one premeditated destruction. Lost Symphony. LostSymphony.com. There's a section in the middle, and you'll hear it. That's absolutely wild. Thirteen eight, and that's Richard's first solo. At it's to to this day one of the most impressive things of anything that I've been a part of. Can you explain how you wrote that? Well, first of all, thank you because you've worked with some absolutely monster guitar players. So thank you. <laughs> that means a lot. Um, so. Um, can I be completely honest with you? When Please. I was soloing over it, I had no idea what time signature it was in. Even better. It doesn't matter. That's why it works. I had you no idea. I, I basically just sat with it and had it on a loop for, for quite a while. Not even with a guitar in my hand. I just was like, let me just get this feel in my head. And then after about five or six loops of it, I, 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 I feel like I've got the kind of feel down. Then I get into specifics of, okay, what can I do over that, either rhythmically or scale-wise or whatever, like what's going on harmonically. Even with that, again, without a guitar, it sounds like it's in this kind of scale, this kind of mood. Yeah, moods and modes with Alex Golnick, all that kind of stuff. So it's, um, and that's kind of how I analyze it. I don't sit with a guitar for, for a while. I just loop it and just go, get, let me absorb the feel of it, the mood of it. And then I'll pick up a guitar and go, because I don't have perfect pitch. So it's like, okay, well, I think it's in this key, but let me see. <laughs> I know I can do this from a, like a relative pitch perspective, but I don't know until I actually pick up the guitar what key it's actually in. And then I'll just kind of improvise around it in the same way we're improvising a conversation right now. We improvise every single day. I just do it with the guitar instead. And... Uh, so I never really thought of it as being an odd time signature. I just kind of, there'd either be something in the drums that would give away, okay, here's beat one again. And I'll just make sure I land on a particular <laughs> note or a particular thing I want to do. There, there we go. Now, here we go. And that's the kind of way I saw odd time signatures for the longest time anyway. I think it's growing up a, a Metallica fan when you realize, <laughs> and then when you learn what odd time signatures are, you're like, oh, okay, I've been doing that forever without really thinking about it. You know, as someone that did get formal training, where did you gain those skills of how to improvise? And I mean, are you aware of what you're drawing from when you do that? Because I would say as a classical player, that's really hard for me. You know, regardless of the time signature, knowing what's going on is the ability to find something from outside that to pull into what you're working on in an um, improvisational sense. Yeah, we, we, I mean, this has changed a lot over the years, and I'm still working on it. I'm still practicing it like every day. But one thing that I found was really, really bizarre from in, uh, that really helped me. I can't even remember where I heard this, but it really helped. And I tell a lot of my students this, even though it sounds really creepy to say it out loud. Here's your blabbermouth headline. Um, but when I'm improvising, I actually picture different guitar players. So when I'll start a solo, I might be thinking, okay, this isn't like a hard and fast rule, but whichever person comes to mind, it'll be like, okay, I'll start off with Steve Vai and it will be followed by Samantha Fish. And <laughs> like, and then it becomes like I'm doing like my really best attempt of sounding like this person but it always never ends up sounding like this person because i can't sound like this person but the inspiration's there it's almost like well what what would joanne shaw taylor do okay she would do a lot of double stops so i'll do a lot of double stops here okay now nuno what would nuno do a lot of string skipping okay i'll go into a string skipping kind of thing and it sometimes it can sound a bit forced and sometimes it surprises me how how much that actually flows I think you just explained how someone really gets their sound because everybody, and you said this on a show, um, which I really respect your teacher. Your teacher said, if you're going to write music that hadn't been done before, it wouldn't be recognizable as music. So everything truly that we original. Do, yeah. Truly original. <laughs> right. So everything that we do, I call it like a buffet. I take a little bit of Brian May, take a little bit of David Gilmore. I take a little bit of, you know, John Petrucci. And it's like my, like, it's my own thing. And that's kind of what you're doing because if you, what people don't forget is the X factor are your are your fingers. So even if you're playing a John Petrucci riff, if I play it, still sounds like Benny. Unfortunately, yeah. you know what I mean. I mean, there's some guys like Joey Concepcion who we're friend we're friends with. 
he's got like an Ouija board where his skill for me is like he can literally almost imitate any guitar. It's like sound like John Sykes and he shakes it like John Sykes. But when you get a guy like that, like Paul Gilbert, uh, I remember uh, I had a conversation one time with Gary Sharon because he's played with the Eddie Van Halen, Paul Gilbert in a Who cover band and Nuno. And I asked him, who's like the most ferocious of those guys to play with? And he's like, well, you know, Eddie was the biggest genius, but like he'd be crazy for a bit and then he'd just puke out genius. But then it was like weird for days. So he's cool and crazy genius, but not like consistent. Nuno, he said, always was just ferocious, period. And that Paul could play anything, but he'd tell you most people don't know what he sounds like. He said he's trying to, it's like, oh, that sounds like Ingve. That sounds like Steve Vai. Very few people hear Paul Gilbert that don't know Paul Gilbert and go, that's Paul Gilbert, even though mm. he's one of the greatest guitarists because he's conquered music and he's conquered this ability to sound like anybody to the point where he sounds like everybody other than Paul Gilbert, unless you know that Paul Gilbert's the ultimate buffet guitarist. Does that make sense? Makes complete sense to me. Yeah. And that, that's where I feel like I've always fit in. I don't feel like I have a sound and I've always been trying to get it, but in a funny way, what people may associate with me having a sound is me trying to find a sound. So I accidentally sound like myself while I'm trying to find what myself sounds like. Do you want to know what your sound is? I'll tell you. <laughs> I said, I said I this to them. Kind of your sound for me as, as a third party omniscient who's worked with all these guitar players, I think that you're the shreddy Dave Gilmore. That's what you sound like to me, because when you play, wow. you, the thing I that uh, typifies um, Gilmore for me is the fact that he his no, note choice and his bends are so perfect that he can do seven minutes of Shine On Your Crazy Diamond before anyone sings, and you're not like, I need to go take another hit of nitrous to get through this. Like <laughs> It's absolutely gorgeous, and it, it's enthralling. Every single note, if you listen to Comfortably Numb, a first year guitar player can learn that solo they can't learn the finesse for which he plays but it's not hard mm. the difference with you is if you took that and then you applied let's say the tech the technicality of a nuno or a marty friedman and put it behind it but then had the restraint of gilmore that for me is what you sound like it's just like if dave could play a little bit crazier and went into that nuno realm but your note choice for me sounds like pink floyd well thank you <laughs> I guess that I mean, does mean a lot. But, but the only thing for me, and I, I, I don't think a lot of soloists talk about this, soloists are as only as good as the band. So you could have the greatest guitar solo on the planet, but you take the, the harmonic backbone away, it'll sound pretty dreadful. It's like, here you go, just here's the solo. It's like you listen to Hotel California without any chords behind it. You're like, this sounds dreadful. <laughs> All of a sudden, Where you put are the you chord listening to Hotel California without chords? You're in a fucking elevator somewhere, and they're like, is that the solo from Hotel California? YouTube. Just soloed? YouTube. How many floors until the top? Like YouTube is, is is my friend when it comes to things like that. When I, as a guitar teacher and for this like new project I've got next month, like finding isolated guitar tracks mm. is brilliant. So you, so it's great when you strip away the drums, bass, vocals, everything, orchestra, whatever it happens to be, and you're left with the guitar solo. You go, this makes zero sense. <laughs> this is the greatest guitar solo of all time. With no chords. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds I, that happened, really weird. That happened to me once, Richard. We had to do a cover of I'll Wait by Van Halen. And I said, you know what? I'll play the Michael Anthony part. Most people don't even think that song has bass. Yeah. Because it's just like the keyboard. Let me tell you. It is mostly dun, dun, dun. But there are some fucking wild ass runs. That if you go and solo what Michael Anthony does, and by the way, the keyboards make no sense. Like that song sounds like it makes sense. There are so that's the thing that's crazy about Van Halen. He does these keyboard things, and they sound totally normal and very pop oriented. Mm. And if you like acknowledge the fact that he he might play in four four, but he does these weird groupings of notes, and they're like all over the place. It's wild. So I, I totally understand what you're saying because when I went and learned this Michael Anthony part, which I thought any idiot could play, oh no. Learning Van Halen, uh, aside from learning like the guitar parts, you know, I play bass in an 80s uh, hairband and we do, you know, a couple of Van Halen tracks. Try to play the backing to the solo in Hot for Teacher. 
makes no goddamn sense. And somehow it all comes together. But me and the drummer, every time we get to that part, we just look at each other like, I'll see you in a few bars, bro. Like, what's that? <laughs> like, I don't know. We got a few measures of chaos and then we'll, we'll get back to it. But like, it's it deceptively insane. All of like, you know, everyone focuses on Eddie, but the, the rhythm section of Van Halen is pure goddamn chaos that comes out shining like a diamond. It makes no sense to me, but it's perfect. That comes from the old school where it was like, we're going to write this song in a practice room. Amps cranked to 11. We can't hear what each other's actually doing, (laughs) but we're just going to do it purely on feel. (laughs) And then when we get to the studio, we'll go, oh, crap, you're playing something different to me. And then we'll figure it out. And then then, whereas now everything is to a click, everything's remote. It's like, okay, well, I don't know what you're doing. Even to a point where people go, I have tabs. That makes me laugh. Well, let me ask you this, because the new Metallica (laughs) song, people are complaining because, okay, so for years, people said that St. Anger was the worst drum sound ever and all of that, and that Lars's timing is terrible. In fact, I, I actually think, having seen Metallica live 24 fucking times, that one of the greatest things about James Hetfield being the greatest rhythm players ever is the fact that he makes Lars sound more in time than he actually is, and he's the guitarist. But the new, the new song people are complaining sounds sampled and quantized versus out of time, and terrible. But and when any other when... metal band does it, it's perfectly acceptable. Yeah. That's what really annoys me about it. Yeah. Yeah, th- yeah, exactly. Why is it acceptable for every other band to do it and nobody talks about it? Yet Metallica do it. And it's that's it. They're awful. It's like, hang on. With uh, we were talking with Shannon kind of about this briefly, but I I think it's it's because Metallica's too popular. They have such yeah. a, a large fan base yeah. that it's it's impossible. It's like trying to get you know like an entire country to agree on a candidate, right? You either like Metallica as a as a, a polished like produced like band like that, or you like the dirty garage rock. And there's no middle ground, so everything they release is going to immediately have half their fans hating it. It's like there's no winning yeah. in that situation. Or you have Richard that just loves everything like Lulu and Saint Anger. Yeah. And there's like guys like me that are like, oh no, that's a part of my life. I push down like the memories at camp. Yeah. And I'm a Metallica fan. He's a staunch Metallica fan. At, at my age, my first Metallica record was the Black Album. I fucking love that album. It is perfection on production. And, you know, if I talk to any of like my my older friends that like, you know, got into Metallica on in the in the earlier days, like, oh, that's bullshit. Like, that's not real. I'm like, I don't care what it is. It's perfect and it's amazing. And they should. And James, James's voice when it's produced and harmonized is the greatest thing I've ever heard. Uh, but then you know, they, they go more yeah. of that like raw style. And it's just, you can tell it's just him yelling into a microphone. And it's like, all right, yeah, this sounds like a garage band. If it wasn't Metallica, it's good. But it, if it wasn't Metallica, it wouldn't be this this like iconic thing on a lot of those songs, in my opinion. Well, as a testament to that, the first harmonies I remember as a child, because it's 91, so I was probably eight. I used to listen to a little mono boombox, and I would I remember taping the Unforgiven and thinking that the harmonies in Unforgiven. So like I'm a Jew. I grew up singing Jewy tunes in a synagogue, and there was these beautiful harmonies. I remember thinking, oh yes, yeah. so I learned them. And I remember here the first time I sang harmonies with other people, and I was like, oh, this is just this is a power. And then I heard that same thing from my Jew tunes, the harmonies in the Unforgiven. I'm like, this is so pretty. And I remember being at like one o'clock in the morning, hearing it on the radio, going to my boombox that already had the 90 minute cassette tape and like trying to record it so that I can understand why I loved it so much. Because the production on that record and the harmonies and when James's voice is produced, it's almost unparalleled. Mm, Exactly. Just out of curiosity, Siobhan, do these kind of conversations happen in the classical world. Absolutely. I mean, well, when we were talking about uh, earlier about guitar solos and taking it out of context, I mean, that immediately made me think about the orchestra world and, you know, the difference between violinists and all the other instruments. And one thing that I would say made me a better orchestrator or arranger was having played viola for so long because violinists have always been in the world of melody and everything's about them. And, you know, there's, there's a pretty limited perspective when you spend your whole life playing the leads, you know, and the magic of so much classical music and, 
you know, even other music that's violin centric, let's say, is the way it's orchestrated around that, you know, and when you take all of that away, a lot of it doesn't make sense. So I, I gained a massive appreciation from playing nonviolent instruments like piano and viola and just being friends with a lot of the people that were the support players. So, yeah, mm. I mean, similar conversations. There isn't as much controversy, I guess, around classical albums because it's a pretty limited supply. You know, there's a there are a few classical labels and it's a lot of the same artists for a long period of time and everyone's following tradition. So you're not there isn't a huge amount of risk taking, I would say. There's, you know, it's everything's pretty conventional. So we, we love the, the other thing I was going to ask you, Siobhan, if you don't mind, we, we, you know how we were talking about how the old school guys get into a room and jam and these kind of things kind of naturally happen just from gigging relentlessly. They, they would work out songs in front of an audience for years before they record a note, but now you can't do that thanks to YouTube. That's why nobody ever plays anything. But in terms of you working with, because um, I know you did things like the Queen's Gambit, just out of curiosity, how did that work in terms of doing it for Netflix? Was it actually in a room, everybody together, and you're just told this, or is it purely remote? If it is remote, or if it is 100% live, what changes have you seen over the years, especially pre and post COVID? I'm very curious how it works with like film and TV music. If it's similar to the rock and metal world in terms of its remote uh, use of remote recording. I yeah, say. I think definitely the use of remote recording is more prevalent. Um, I think just with the presence of technology and the fact that especially with film and at least of my involvement in the Queen's Gambit, you know, it was primarily led by the composer. So he worked with the people on the team for that for that um, series. But he was basically largely in creative control of what was going on. And then my involvement was mostly with the solo violin stuff. So I actually worked directly with him in, in his studio here in Miami and recorded. And he kind of coached me through the pieces that I was doing. And then there was a whole orchestra, I think, overseas in Europe somewhere where they recorded all together in a studio. And that was directed by... Um, a conductor. And I, so there was a lot that was being done remotely. Um, and I think especially when it comes to things that have large orchestral scores mm. for budget reasons, I think a lot of things are done overseas. And I've heard other people talk about this and we might've even talked about this on the show where it's like, you can actually contract amazing orchestras in Europe that actually charge less than showed on the comma. Yeah. Sh that's showed right. on the comma right. did the Jason Becker record. I think it was in, was it Sarajevo, Bosnia? Yeah, something, something like, like that. that. Mm. Um, you know, uh, so you can get these unbelievable, you know, these Slavic players that are better than all of us slobby Americans uh, for, you know, rubles on the penny uh, out overseas. And I know that Shoda has flown overseas multiple times to do orchestra stuff because it's just, I mean, the U.S., we want to pay people here. So why not go to Bosnia and char give two cents to someone who can play Paganini by seven? Well, plus there's a lot of different play. You know, it's different from when you're thinking about rock bands or people that are writing music together. This is largely there is there is a composer who is basically in creative control. And then there are contracted players that are, you know, performing the score that's already there. So, you know, for most of the classical instruments, that's what's happening. You're not always getting any creative input. You know, you're mostly the the pawn of the composer. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I was very curious to see how these things have worked, especially like with technology, because we talk about it in terms of a rock and pop and metal world, but it is every single genre. I'd be curious to speak to some jazz guys and see how they feel about remote recording. Oh, one I of the most interesting jazz, jazz guys wouldn't use a computer. That's too right. exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, to be together. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Well, so listen, guys, we're we're coming up on the end of part one here. So we we clearly have much more to dive into in part two. But uh, let's just uh, wrap this one up real quick. Well, I was going to say one of the most interesting things, just to dovetail off that last just thing. Just add more that, extension on the end of you. Yeah, so. totally. Well, because it's important because we had Marco on who worked with Madonna and we had Shota who worked with Jason Becker. And they both had the same issues where people had programmed things uh, uh, using fake instruments, VST instruments. And then when they brought their real instruments in, Madonna, for example, sat there with Marco literally sitting in a giant theater or whatever or uh, arena and saying, can you make it sound like this? And they had used a patch. And Marco, who's one of the greatest cellists literally in history, is like, I'm trying, but she couldn't imitate the fakeness of MIDI. 
And I know that when uh, Shota went over and, and did the Jason Becker stuff, the guy who was doing a, a lot of the arrangements who worked with Jason isn't, doesn't do a lot of real orchestrations outside of that. So he was saying stuff like, could you imitate the way that the MIDI stops here and all of that, as opposed to the natural sound of an orchestra. And that blew my mind because you have a lot of people who are programming this stuff and saying, play it like this. Like my brother to Siobhan, he sent her a bunch of music from Lost Symphony. And she's like, this isn't even for a violin because Brian doesn't know better. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's demoitis, right? You get used to listening to this thing That's that you true. programmed and then hey, you're yeah. not playing it like I programmed it. It's like, well, then just keep that and save your money, you know? Uh, we can dive, exactly. we can dive more into that, uh, in the next episode though, but we're, we're gonna, we're gonna stop now. Uh, <laughs> Richard, uh, where can people find you? And I know you're, you're big, you're big on the lessons right now. And I'm, so I'm sure our listeners might want to get in touch with you about that. Everything's pretty much through my Instagram and Facebook. I don't have an official website or anything like that. So Richard Shaw guitarist on both Facebook and Instagram. You don't want a website, you know, you know, go check out like Wix.com or something. You could have that, uh. I, my life is too busy without having to maintain more things. <laughs> and I do have that book out. That's yeah. available and on Amazon. Yeah. If you can't afford to get the incredible lessons of Richard Shaw, because you, you might be a guitarist and you're just trying to get food in your refrigerator, spend the 20 bucks, go on to Amazon and buy this book. It is so illuminating. It tells you everything that you like all the stuff we're talking about, like modes and feels and basic music stuff that for years you've been faking that you think, you know, this explains it in guitar terms. Like, hey, you know that song? You know what that sounds like? That's this. And yep. I got to tell you, I learned a lot from this book as a total pedestrian guitarist. I can now be even more dangerous when I speak with Siobhan. <laughs> Fretboard <laughs> and songwriting theory for metalheads by yeah, Richard we'll, Shaw. And we'll have a link to that in the description. Richard, thanks for hanging with us. We'll see you next week. Guys, check out 2020-D.com and we'll see you next time. Thank you, as always, for checking out this episode of 2020. Please visit 2020-D.com. Like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. This week's throwback clip is from episode number 95, featuring Matt Bashan of Shadows Fall and Living Wreckage. Check it out. Well, I mean, but the, but the shows were killer. And then, you know, so the very first one uh, was sold out. It was like 12,000 people or something, and, and we were supposed to do a Pantera set with Phil and Summo, and they didn't tell anybody until after Zach Hall was done, that he didn't show up. Oh my God. <laughs> so now you've got 10,000 people in Romania chanting Pantera, and the bodyguards are like, lock yourselves in the dressing room. I'll let you know when it's safe to come out. Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road.